Grace and joy to you, family. Will you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Our passage this morning is in the book of Matthew, the familiar passage that we often hear at Christmas. Usually we hear either from Matthew or Luke, and this morning we're in Matthew's Gospel. I'm in chapter 1, starting at verse 18. If I can find Matthew... There we go. So starting chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife. But he knew her not until he had given until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening the treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, 
Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. All right, you may be seated. I had a bit of trouble trying to come up with a title for the sermon. Uh, it's about two dreams. I call it Two Dreams That Saved a Family. The two dreams that Joseph had from the angel. But I'm also going to talk about three institutions, about the family, mostly about the family, about the family, about the church, and about the state. These are three institutions that God established. But this is also a story about three men, about Joseph and two other men. So I could call the sermon Three Men and a Baby, but that sounds like a movie title. (laughs) So I better stick with uh, Joseph Angel, Two Dreams That Saved a Family. Now, of course, I, w- I wish you Merry Christmas today. Christmas is just around the corner. Let's try that. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Say to your neighbor, neighbor, <laughs> oh, neighbor. oh neighbor, let's have a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Now, of course, as Bible-believing Christians, we celebrate Christmas, but we don't do it the way unbelievers do. Right. You know, unbelievers also celebrate Christmas. Or sometimes Christians who only show up in church for Christmas and Easter. They celebrate Christmas too. Now why do they do this? Well, one reason to uh, celebrate Christmas is to spend a lot of money on ourselves. We act as if we're giving away gifts, but what really happens? This family spends a lot of money. They give gifts to one another. At the end of the season, the bank account is empty and everyone in the family has lots of new toys or gadgets or whatever it is. Another reason people celebrate is to enjoy the winter weather and the Christmas activities. Or they celebrate Christmas to take a part in the infamous Christmas office party where terrible things happen. People drink too much, they flirt with someone when they think their wife or husband isn't looking and then they hear about it for the next several months and who knows where that family will be by next Christmas. <laughs> Aren't those the images we see in our culture? It's almost like a suggestion. This is what you do at Christmas. But there's a more positive attitude toward Christmas that is common even among non-Christian people, and that is that celebrating Christmas is being together with the family. That's what's important, even at the cost of covering great distances. Now, uh, I have a family member here who's not normally with us, David. He's right there in the front. So, so there's the prince, David, and there's the queen right next to him, I, my wife Mary. And I feel like a king today because my son is visiting. Well, I'm not the only one. We were at the airport last night to pick him up, and guess what we saw? The, the airport was about as full as I've ever seen it, and what was happening? People were there to greet family members who've come home for Christmas. There were some who were had their Christmas break from the military. There was a whole group of, of people that had come in, and I talked to one family that had a sign there, Welcome Home, Airman Seha. 
was coming home. So that's a positive thing. In fact, there's a popular song, I'll Be Home for Christmas. I'll be home for Christmas. You can count on me. I'll be home for Christmas if only in my dreams. Have you heard that song? Yeah, it's important to be home for Christmas. But sadly for some, it's only in their dreams. So Christmas is a time when it's important to be home. It's also a time when sometimes people are sad because of the brokenness in their family. Now this theme of closeness, family closeness at Christmas, points us toward my topic. As I was saying, Christmas as it relates to these three institutions, the family, the church, the state. I would even add a fourth institution, work. And these are all things that are established in the book of Genesis that are part of God's plan for life. Life as God intended it. And of course, when man fell and went into rebellion against God, all of these institutions were threatened as well. And these institutions are established by God. That's why we cannot redefine them any old way we want to without suffering the consequences. You see, God has designed them. He is the designer of the universe. He's the designer of our bodies. And when we go against His plan, we suffer the consequences. What do you think would happen if a surgeon would just open you up and reconnect some of your organs in a new way? Would your body operate the right way afterward? No. And the same thing happens when you take an institution like marriage or the family. You can't just open it up, reconnect it any way you want to, then sew it back up again and expect it to be healthy. So what I'm talking about is viewing all of life from a biblical perspective. Not just our life in church or on Sunday or at Christmas time. And not just your religious faith. You know what the world tends to think of that is religious faith is something private and personal. It's almost secret and underground. It's something you don't talk about in public. But the things I'm talking about here, the family, work, the church, the state, these are all institutions that we practice in public. When you get married, you're supposed to do this in public. And when we talk about those things, when we ask what the Bible teaches about those things, and then we follow, we act on what it teaches, we are engaged in, pub- in spiritual warfare in the streets and in the public sphere when we act on what the Bible teaches on all of those things. So that's what it is to have a Christian worldview. It's not just your faith in God in your private realm. It's understanding what God's design is, which is revealed in the Bible on all of life and all of these important public institutions and practices that we engage in and then acting on what the Bible teaches. So let's take a look. I, I believe I have Bible for my biblical worldview, and let's let's see what that uh, looks like today. Let's turn to Matthew's Gospel. Now, Matthew's Gospel is interesting because it gives a larger role to Joseph than in some of the other Gospels, and that's why I want to kind of focus on Joseph and these dreams and the role that he plays in saving a family. Even though Joseph is not Jesus' biological father, Matthew honors Joseph's role as the husband and father, as the head of the family. 
But this very question is, is the one that arises, this question of the family. What will happen with this family? That's what arises as soon as the genealogies are over in, uh, in the uh, Gospel of Matthew. Joseph asked this question, Will I be Mary's husband now? Now that I know that she's pregnant. Will this marriage last? Am I really the head of this family? Do I want to stick around and be the head of this family? Let's look at some of the background on what's going on. Of course, this is not marriage as we practice it in North America in the 21st century. This was an arranged marriage. Marriage is usually arranged between families when the, when the two parties, the future husband and wife, were still children. And then there was the betrothal. That's what we're reading about in our passage today. This was an official agreement before witnesses. Of course, that would include the members of both families. And there would be a money exchanged. That is the bride price. So the husband would pay the bride price and then usually wait for his bride about a year or so. Sometimes this was waiting until she was of legal age to marry. Maybe 16 years old. That was the legal age. That's why scholars usually think that Mary was a young woman, maybe only 15 or so, when the angel came to her and told her what was happening, and then maybe only 16 or so when she gave birth to the child, when Joseph then married her. So we have this, there's the, there's the, the betrothal, which is a formal contract, money is exchanged, at that point the woman is considered your wife, and then there's this waiting period to make sure that everything is right. That she's a virgin, that she's pure, that she's upright, and this is exactly where everything goes wrong. Because it's during this year that Mary is found pregnant. So we have a young marriage and a family in the making that faced a crisis. In other words, Matthew's Gospel starts out with another marriage on the rocks. Another family about to break up. At least that's the threat. And this actually seems appropriate because we see in the book of Genesis, where all of these institutions were established, as I'm telling you, we see that in Genesis that man's fall into sin, his rebellion against God was a family affair. Now Adam fell. How do we know? The first thing we see is him laying out of church, that is, hiding from God and complaining about his wife. Doesn't that just sound like a bad husband? Then Eve fell. How do we know? Well, the first thing we see is her consulting with some snake in the grass when she should be checking with her husband. And then, then she uses her feminine wiles to entice him to go along with her with her bad decision. Even if they eat the fruit together, and that's what most people think. We, we make a mistake if we think she ate first and later she go get, and gets her husband. She probably took Adam with her. I'm going to do it. Are you? So she fell. Looks like, a, looks like a fallen wife to me. And then Adam and Eve's children fell. How do we know? Well, the first thing we see is we see them competing for God's favor. This is where the church as an institution falls. And then out of jealousy, jealousy over God, one brother kills the other. 
So here we see trouble in these, in these institutions. And what is the first institution that God established for the good of humanity? He established the family. What happens when man rebels against God and chooses his own way? The family falls apart. Today we see people wanting to redefine family, as I've been saying. That it can be whatever... In a sense, what they want to do is they define family as whatever is left over of the mess that we've made of family. Let's just take that and label that family. So what happens to the church when man rebels against God? Because we see that here. Well, worshiping God becomes a competition. We think that there isn't enough God to go around. We hoard the gospel. We say that God is big enough for my kind of people, but he's not big enough to include everyone. You know, the, the Jews had that problem. After all, we have to draw the line somewhere. But this is a perversion of what God planned for his relation with mankind, that is, the church. The church is where God's relationship with us is instituted, in a covenant, in a group, where you have a leader and we have membership and we have certain patterns that we follow. So we want to draw the line in our own way, not the way God wants to draw it. Where does God draw the line? God says, I've sent patriarchs, I've sent prophets, I've sent priests, but that is all just preparation. In fact, this is so bad that I'm coming down there myself. I'm going to get to the bottom of this. I'm going to fix things right. And I'm not going to take any shortcuts. That is the God we serve. Jesus says, people get all dressed up. They get all fixed up and they go to the mountain to meet God. Well, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to mount up Mount Calvary. I won't be all dressed up. I won't be all fixed up. I'm going to give everything I have to give. I'm going to lay down my life. And why? when I'm done, you won't need to go to it mountain to meet God. You'll be able to meet God anywhere. That's why I'm coming down there myself. When I'm done, you'll be able to meet God anywhere. As we say here at New Beginnings Church, God can save anybody. Anybody, anytime, dressed anyway, from anywhere. Because of Jesus, God will meet you at the bottom. He will find you at your lowest. Whatever form that takes. In the ditch in the grips of depression, in the grips of sickness, in the grip, grips of a family breakup, that's where God will find you. But let's move back to Joseph's first angelic dream. The fall of man in the book of Genesis, as I'm saying, is a family affair. And the Apostle Matthew is showing us here that the coming of the Savior into the world is also a family affair. Mary came up pregnant during the period of betrothal and a young husband-to-be faced a crisis. Would this family be destroyed before it ever got off the ground? It sounds like the story of the first human family, doesn't it? See, Joseph and Mary represent God's salvaging operation. God, you see, is in the salvaging business. But unlike human salvagers, God takes junk and he turns it into a top-ranked product, into his pride and joy, the apple of his eye. That is what God does when he saves us. 
And all of that is at stake when Joseph hears of Mary's pregnancy. And what an excuse she has. The Holy Spirit did it. Would, would you believe that excuse? That's why God had to intervene and He had to send the angel in a dream. And then Joseph's actions, they show his character. They show that like Mary, Joseph was also a chosen one. Joseph was unwilling to put her to shame and he did not act in haste. It was as he considered these things that an angel brought Joseph's God's message in a dream. This is what he said to him basically. Stay right where you are. In this marriage. In this family. Let's look at this sign of the virgin that Matthew then mentions after the dream. We're all familiar with what the angel says. Uh, Jesus really is conceived of the Holy Spirit. Although Joseph probably had no idea what that meant when the angel told him. He said, his name will be Jesus, that is Yeshua or Yehoshua. It means Yahweh saves. And he will save us from our sins is what the angel says. There were all sorts of definitions among the Jews of what that meant when the Messiah came to deliver them. And then Matthew adds what Joseph may have come to understand later, that all of this happened in fulfillment of God's plan, and in fact, in fulfillment of a specific prophecy in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 7.14 Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's the word El or Elohim for God. We have that word in the middle of that name. So this was a prophecy given by the prophet Isaiah to King Ahaz of Judah. And that's one of these, we talk about the three men and a baby. Ahaz is one of those men. He was king of Judah, a descendant of David, but perhaps the most evil king ever to rule over the Jews in the Old Testament. Now, 2 Kings 16 tells us that Ahaz did not do as his ancestor David had done, serving Yahweh, that is the Lord God of Israel. Instead, he followed the example of the kings in the northern kingdom of Israel, turning to Baal worship. And it's for this reason that Yahweh, the Lord God, punished Ahaz and Judah for their disobedience. The land was invaded even by their Jewish brothers from the north. And Jerusalem was besieged and hundreds of thousands of Judeans died in these attacks. So what did Ahaz do? Ahaz was an apostate. That is, he's someone who had fallen away from the true faith of worshiping the true God. And like all apostates, he deceived himself even when he was turning to a higher power for help. Ahaz turned to other gods. He turned to the Canaanite gods. And in his desperation, he even sacrificed his own son to gain the God's favor. Now let me read from you to you from 2 Kings 16 what it says here. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And then he died. So he died at age 36. A short life. 
And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. So here is a descendant of David who goes wrong. Jesus is the descendant of David who makes things right. But he, Ahaz, he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. You can hear how the writer here is disgusted with Ahaz, who spreads this false religion all over the kingdom of Judea. So he turns to other gods, and it's in this context that Isaiah's prophecy comes about a virgin giving birth to a son. Let's turn there to Isaiah 7. The king is... uh, the king is uh, speaking, the, uh, the, the prophet Isaiah is speaking to Ahaz. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz through the prophet. Uh, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. This is a challenge to Ahaz because Ahaz has been unfaithful to God. And he says, challenge me. I'll live up to it. I'll step up. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. That was just an excuse. And he, the prophet, said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary God also? Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. So Ahaz was someone who had practiced the abomination of child sacrifice, what should never be, where the giver of life instead gives death to his children. And here it is promised that God will perform a miracle to bury and undo this abomination. He will produce life from where life is impossible. A virgin will become a giver of life. Then this miracle boy will eat curds and honey. That is, by the time he's old enough to know right from wrong, by that time God will wipe away Ahaz's two enemies that he was so afraid of with a third force, that is, the Assyrian Empire, And why will people be eating milk and curds and honey? Because the destruction will be so great that that's the only thing that will be left to eat. But of course, Ahaz does not listen to Isaiah. He makes an alliance with this same Assyrian empire. It's recounted in 1 Kings 16, 2 Chronicles 28. Ahaz even went to Damascus to meet his so-called ally, the Assyrian king. He saw there the, the altar of the Canaanite god, the altar to Hadad, one of the Baals. And he sent instructions to Jerusalem to have a copy of that altar made. Then he set up that altar in front of the temple of Jerusalem and he had the Jewish priests sacrifice on that altar to the Baals. He ravaged the temple, took out the silver and gold to pay off the king of Assyria, to buy an alliance with him and get these other people off his neck. Can you believe that? Can you believe the way he's desecrated the worship of God? So that's, here, this is how the book of Second Chronicles put it. In the time of his distress, 
he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same king Ahaz. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, Because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. Now isn't that just like people nowadays? How many times have we made an alliance with the enemies of God, with the things that are not of God, and then we make an idol of that, that relationship or that thing, that habit, and we bow down and we worship it? How many times have we found out that an ally of ours was actually an enemy? An enemy God had warned us about. But we take our new obsession, our new thing that drags us down, defeats us, we redefine it, and then we make an idol of it and bow down and worship it. So what we see here is that there's more to this prophecy of the virgin birth than meets the eye at first. This is really talking about perversion of the family, a man who kills his own children, perversion of religion or the church, perversion of the state. By citing this prophecy from the book of Isaiah, Matthew is showing us that in Jesus, God is out to redeem all of creation, all of this corruption from the bottom, from the top, from the lowest to the... To the to the, to the palace of the king. And that's why Isaiah tells us about, uh, that's why Matthew tells us about this son born of a, of a virgin. He also says, Isaiah says, for unto us a son is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. See, God is out to redeem everything from the lowest, from the family in a hovel to the king in his palace. All of this is at stake here with the coming of Emmanuel. And he comes, therefore, into a normal family with a humble, confused virgin girl, a confused, distraught, desperate husband. God's plan is to redeem all of life, all of society, starting with the very institution, the very first, the marriage and the family. God is in the salvaging business. And his salvaging operation starts at the very bottom with this poor little young, betrothed woman who finds herself pregnant and has to explain that to her fiancé. And so we have that first angelic dream. Stay right where you are. Stay in this marriage. Stay with this family. Don't run away as a husband and father. I know you're better than that. Joseph woke from the sleep and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He's a positive model for family and especially for husbands and fathers. Joseph believed God. He obeyed God. He honored his wife. He risked scandal to give a place of honor to this mysterious child. So God is showing here that he's redeeming marriage and family from the bottom up. This family that seemed like it might never get off the ground. God intervenes and an honorable, obedient husband does the right and honorable thing for his wife and his child. He takes this child and claims it as his own. He reminds me of our Heavenly Father who rescues us when we've sold out to someone else who still takes us back. Like the father who took back the prodigal son. Puts a robe on our back, puts a ring on our finger, kills the fatted calf, throws a party for us, welcomes us home, and calls us his child. See, Joseph was a husband and a father like that. 
And so this was the first dream. Stay right where you are. Stay in this marriage. Stay with this family. Don't run away. And then we have the story of the Magi who come seeking Jesus. And this is a familiar part of the Christmas tradition. What's going on here is that Matthew includes this story because this is his way of opening a very important theme in the Gospel of Matthew. That is, God's love for all people, for the Gentiles. And in his Gospel, the the Magi are the first Gentiles who come to Jesus. That's how he opens his, his gospel. In a sense, he opens first with the genealogy to show that this Jesus is a son of David. That's a message to the Jews. But then his next story is the story of the Magi coming to the Jesus to show that the Gentiles are also included. And this theme is so important that that's the theme that Matthew uses at the end of the gospel. the end of the gospel, we have the Great Commission where... Uh, we are called to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. So that's how that theme ends in the Gospel of Matthew. Let's move on to now to Joseph's second angelic dream. We come to the second dream. An angel brought a different message this time. The first angelic was stay right message was stay right you where you are in this family, in this marriage. Don't you go running away. Now the second message is the opposite. It's get out. If I wasn't a pastor, I'd say, get the hell out. Get out. Get away in order to protect your family. Because now that Herod knows about you, all hell is going to break loose. And that's exactly what happened. The power and ruler of hell, you see, uses men like Herod. That's the, that's the, the second bad man. Herod is actually a man very much like Ahaz. A man who's made a deal with Rome, with the Roman power, the same way that Ahaz has made a deal with the Assyrian power. A man who uses religion as a political ploy, as a political tool the way Ahaz has done. And so this man, he sees this newborn king of the Jews as a threat to him, and he's going to come down on Bethlehem, and he's going to kill all of the baby children, all of the male children from two years and younger because he had heard from the Magi that they had seen the star arise two years earlier. That's why most accounts believe that the Magi come and visit Jesus as a two-year-old child. This is not the same night as the night when the shepherds come and see the child. So the ruler of hell is going to use a man like Herod to make all hell break loose in Bethlehem. Herod is the first kind of man who destroys marriages, destroys families. Joseph is the kind of man who salvages marriages and salvages families. Satan and his servants take what is good and beautiful and right and they destroy it and bring it to grief. God and his servants, men like Joseph, take what God considered to what some people consider to be damaged goods and rescue them. And of course, we are all damaged goods, are we not? So Joseph was a good husband and a good father here. He was a young husband, a young father who was wise beyond his years. How did he get that wisdom? He was obedient to God. Joseph rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. So we have here the message. Uh, Really, it's the message of the gospel. The Magi, you see, they were non-Jews. They were looking for the Jewish king and the Jewish God. They were looking up 
for God. They were looking at the stars, trying to pull themselves up to find God. But you see, the Christmas message is the message of Emmanuel. It's the advent of God. When God comes to us, He comes down to us. Our God, the God of the Bible, is Emmanuel. This is what makes the God of the Bible unlike all other so-called gods. The Magi did not go up to find God. God came down to find God them. This God is the God of the Bible. This is Emmanuel. This is the com- and now the completion of the Emmanuel theme of God being with us is what God shows us then at Calvary. Here we have Jesus who is with us even as our lowest, in the midst of the curse of sin and death. When He took on the curse of sin and death at Calvary, He ascended to Mount Calvary up to the cross. Then He descended into hell, into the the realm of the dead, where the curse of sin was, was going to send us all. And then He rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Jesus did all of this to save sinners, to save families. And God wants to save you. Give you a family. So that's what we're here about. We're here about the saving gospel of Christ. And that's what Christ offers you. He offers to save you, to save your family, to save your community, to save your nation, to save your culture, to save your society. We have to be broken for just more than individual lives. God wants to save whole cities and whole nations. God has a passion to save everyone, to save whole cultures for Christ. We are living in a society where all of society is broken. It's not just individual lives that are broken. That's the message that we preach here. That's what God offers you. He will reach you. He will save you. He will save your family. He will save your friends. He will save the groups that are important to you. That's the saving gospel of Christ. That's what we offer here at New Beginnings. We want to walk with you. If God is speaking to you, we want to stand by you. We'll hold your hand. We'll hug you. We'll embrace you. We'll listen to your needs. If your family is in trouble, we'll support you. We support families here. We have model families. We have people who are doing what it takes to live a family life, to hold their marriage together, to raise their children in the admonition of the Lord. If you need a family, if you need support for your family, you can find it here. And if you need another family, we all need a second family. That's what God designed us for. If you need a second family, it's called the family of God. And we will welcome you into the family of God here. We have a pastor here. That's why we call one another brother and sister. That's why the pastors here called you as members son and daughters. We are the family of God. Jesus came to save the world, to save individuals, to save families, to save nations. And it all started with that first family. In the Christian tradition, we call it the Holy Family. Christmas is about family. 
but it's a lot more than most non-Christians really think about when they think about the Christian tradition. We should thank God for the Holy Family. Thank God for Joseph who protected that family. And thank God for Jesus whom Joseph provided a place for. Look at the price they paid to give a place for Jesus. Mary, she took the shame. Joseph took the shame, but he obeyed God. He welcomed this child into his family. Will you welcome Jesus into your family? That's what I urge you to do today. Let's give God some praise.